Welcome to this keynote address at the 2020 Australasian Aid Conference, hosted by the Development Policy Centre at the Australian National University in partnership with the Asia Foundation. In this thought-provoking address, Jonathan Glennie, Principal Associate at the Yupalunga Institute, argues that the international development aid mentality is outdated. He sets out a new approach for the 21st century, which he calls global public investment, and proposes five paradigm-shifting ideas for the future of concessional international public finance. The address is chaired by Elizabeth Peake, First Assistant Secretary of the Human Development and Governance Division at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and introduced by Stephen Howes, Director of the Development Policy Centre. Welcome to our second our plenary session for this morning. My name is Stephen Howes and I'm the Director of the Development Policy Centre. Welcome to everyone in this theatre and in the other two, and of course everyone who's joining us on live streaming uh, for what I'm sure will be a very uh, interesting session. Uh, I'll just, uh, my job is just to start by introducing our chair for the session, and we're uh, delighted to welcome Elizabeth Peake, who is the first Assistant Secretary, Human Development and Governance Division in DFAT. And she will be introducing our keynote speaker, Jonathan Glennie, and chairing the Q&A. So please welcome Elizabeth Peake, and thank you for coming, Elizabeth. Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you, Stephen, for the, for the introduction. Uh, may I first acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to elders past and present. You're in for a treat today uh, to hear Jonathan Glennie from the Yerp Lang Institute speak about paradigm shifting ideas in development. But can I first say thank you to, to Stephen and, and his team for the conference. It's a highlight of the calendar and a great contribution to international development policy. I had the pleasure of having dinner last night with Jonathan, and uh, also we were very privileged to have Jonathan speak at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade yesterday. So I know that his ideas will be provocative, and from our perspective in, within government, uh, his ideas are very timely. They'll fall on very fertile ground, because as many of you know, uh, the Foreign Minister and Minister Hawke have announced a refresh of our international development policy. So it's a time for, for big ideas, it's a time to rethink what we do, and we're very lucky to be guided in our policy thinking also by an independent expert panel. And can I acknowledge Mr James Batley, who is one of our members of the expert panel uh, who's guiding our thinking. Jonathan is a, a writer and practitioner of international poverty and human rights. Uh, it's an area of focus. Uh, his area of focus is the changing nature of development. As I mentioned, he's from the Europe Lang Institute, but he has a, you may have seen his uh, a very impressive uh, biography, and he's done many things, including working uh, most recently at the Ipsos Institute. Um, so without further ado, can I introduce Jonathan? Um, please join with me in giving him a very warm welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Hello. Uh, thanks very much for having me. Really, the privilege is mine. It's been such an honour to be here, not least because I just spent three days at Environ Bay with my cousin. Uh, he's been living here for many years and I've been waiting for a conference invite all that time. <laughs> Finally it came through, so that was a good start to my stay. Um, but also the opportunity to speak with Liz and others and James uh, about the uh, refresh of the Australian aid strategy. Uh, it, it, it's really interesting and uh, also similar discussions are happening all over the world, not least in my own country, which is the UK. Um, today I want to talk about uh, the future. I can't work out whether to call it the future or the end of aid. It's kind of both. Um, the, the, the first uh, book I wrote was going to be called Aid and Africa 
getting it right. The publisher said to me, Jonathan, you do want to sell this book, don't you? And so they actually, they actually even bothered to, to kind of make up a front cover that we never used, and it eventually got called The Trouble with Aid, Why Less Can Mean More for Africa. And anyone who is in the academic world and knows how hard it is to get stuff published will understand my dilemma as I, as I accepted a much more provocative but not quite perfect title for my book, simply in the interest of selling it. Um, <laughs> in, okay. In, 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 when I wrote that, the main concern I had was that there was too much focus on aid. And the international development community, especially in the, in, in the era of the MDGs, was all about how we can send money to resolve problems. And, and this book was, was, was about how, you know, actually too much uh, aid can be problematic for various reasons, which I'm not going to go into in this uh, uh, talk. But also I was talking about the Beyond Aid agenda, why there are so many more important things that Australia and other countries need to do in order to uh, support development. It was a very interesting uh, meeting on the Pacific um, step up that we had yesterday in which that, that came through very, very strongly. That was what I thought was the uh, most important thing in 2010, to, to push the international development sector to look beyond concessional finance. The reason why I'm here today is because I think we actually face a different problem now. The beyond odor agenda, the beyond aid agenda is being used as an opportunity to resile from uh, the responsibilities of, of wealthy countries to send money and redistribute money internationally. So it's, a quite a it's, it's both correct that we need to think beyond aid, it's also quite a convenient excuse for those that want to basically gradually uh, begin to diminish aid. So the point of this talk is to suggest an evolution in the way that we think about aid and concession, concessional international public finance more broadly, at no stage, and I want to make this clear, will I claim that this is the most important thing there is for international development. Not at all. I haven't changed my mind on that. I can think of many things that are more important than concessional international public finance or aid to support international development, more important that, that the Australians and others need to do higher up in the development strategy. Nevertheless, what I want to emphasise is that there is still a really important place for uh, concessional international public finance uh, aid and other, other kinds of money. And I think that's what's being lost. And I think this is an opportunity to change the way we think about it all and get it right, for the, really, for the 21st century. So as we were talking about how to finance the SDGs back in 2015, there was a big conference in Addis. And this phrase, billions to trillions, turned up. And the idea was, given the hugely more ambitious SDGs compared with the MDGs, the quote, billions from ODA would need to be replaced by trillions. Uh, and everyone talked about how to get the private sector on board and, and, and all of that. And there's a lot of truth in that. It just struck me, and it's increasingly struck me over the years, that while there is absolute clarity in the international development sector that we need to increase the finance from pretty much every source of development finance possible, there's absolutely clarity on the importance of increased domestic public spending, on the importance of more private finance and investment, more philanthropy. No one denies the importance, the great role that big foundations are increasingly playing. On, on, on increasing remittances, there is absolute confusion about the future of aid. And although in the documents it always says we need to increase aid or maintain 0.7, that's the standard UN line, when you go to actual meetings of... Uh, especially in uh, donor countries, but also in, in, in any government or in civil society, the next 10, 15, 20 years of aid is in a state of confusion. I was at a meeting in China recently where a lot of the leading uh, policy uh, directors of the main uh, traditional donor countries were there, including the Australians. And I came away with, 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 a, with a kind of quite provocative thought, which I shared with you guys the other day, there's no ministry, there's no other ministry in government which, is so, which spends so much time question, questioning its own, the, the point of its existence. <laughs> like the Ministry of Transport does not sit there thinking, what are we doing in 10 years' time? The health ministry doesn't, no ministry does. The, the aid ministries and, and our own sector and even academics are hugely and highly expert in what they do. Very, very experienced, usually with many decades behind them. And yet the simple question, what's the role of aid in the 21st century to support development or sustainable development? It, it, it elicits either very different answers or quite a lot of silence. 
We know what the problems are, we know what the challenges are, but what's the role of this specific kind of money, concessional international public finance, for the 21st century? I don't think we're clear on it. So the point of this work is to, well, let me, let me, let me just say that I think there's a reason for that, and there, there are major paradigm shifts uh, going, going about, and the move from the NDGs to the SDGs is one of the most important ones. So classically, we're taught to think that aid is meant to do itself out of a job. Um, I, I, I'm from the civil society sector originally, Save the Children, Christian Aid, and places like that, and that's absolutely the language we use. But also, uh, in, the, in the formal aid sector, that's the language that's used. So I could have used any quote, but here I put up Donald Kabaruka, who used to run the African Development Bank. Aid is not successful unless it has a sell-by date. If aid does not stop, it will have failed. And that's a common phrase uh, throughout the aid sector here in Australia and in, in most donor countries. And yet we have this kind of quote, which sums up for me the SDGs from, from, from a guy who used to run the German aid agency. Development only really begins when extreme poverty is eradicated, transforming the focus on poverty that we've had in the last 20, 30 years and, and, and kind of um, symbolizing the hugely more ambitious um, SDG agenda. Paul Collier, many of you will have read, he's been a very influential thinker and he's said a lot of important things. And he kind of summarizes the, the, the classic, again, the classic approach to graduating from aid. There is basically no role for international development cooperation in middle-income countries. Now, I know that Australia works a lot with middle-income countries and it's kind of an interesting question for the strategies you go forward. But that's, that's the typical understanding. As countries begin to emerge from very low income status, they will begin to graduate from aid. Aid is a temporary fillip to countries that need kind of emergency, even if it's long-term emergency uh, help. And then you have, at the same time, Martin Revalian uh, from the World Bank, who some years ago said, is it not time for these arcane income thresholds for graduating from low income status to be laid to rest? And I know that a lot of us would agree with that as well. Um, no one I've met yet, including Lark Pritchett, knows where the, um, the arbitrary thresholds between low income, middle income, and high income were set. When and where, by who. They're, 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 they are in the mists of time and development myth, and they're, they're, they're really quite meaningless. We all know that, we all nod to that, and yet we'll go back to our meetings and we'll strategize based on, on these classifications, and we still use them in all, all the time. So I think there's a huge kind of cognitive dissonance and confusion there. So this proposal seeks to clarify, and it doesn't have all the answers by any means, but it tries to clarify the role of concessional international public finance for the 21st century, respond to the clearly higher ambitions set out in Agenda 2030, which is the, the SDGs, reflect the emergence of providers from the global south, lead to increases of financial commitments globally, enhance impact and effectiveness, democratize governance based on the rising uh, influence of the global south, garner legitimacy from civil society, enhance global common benefits, use language that's modern and non-paternalist, and I'll come on to that as well, and secure strong and stable support from critical constituencies. There's a couple more kind of throat-clearing, context-setting notes that I'd like to share before I kind of go into the main uh, proposal. The, the, the first is, and it happened last night uh, in our meeting with, uh, with, with the expert panel, and it happens always. Um, we get about a couple of minutes talking about actually what the point of uh, uh, aid and development finance is for development, and we move very quickly on to, but what will, what will China think? Um, <laughs> or what will uh, Western, I think it was, this is not my area, but West, the Western suburbs of Sydney think? or, um, you know, the various parts of things, and they are really important questions, okay? I, I luckily don't have to think about them too much, uh, but that's the particular place I'm in at the moment. But what I wanted to emphasize was, while we need to get onto political issues, political positioning, and while we need clearly to get onto communicating with the public, they are massively, massively important issues. Very, very often, because of the nature of our work in this sector, we get there far too fast and we don't actually think about a proper analysis clarifying what we think are the development benefits of X, Y, and Z policy before we think about what, how it might play uh, with regard to national interests or, um, or voters. So I just want to emphasize that I'm focusing a lot on the first two here to try and get the, because uh, my view is that even the experts on aid don't have a clear basic concept of what the point of aid is, us. Um, and I think we need to rectify that if we're going to get anywhere. 
And the second thing I, I want to say is, it's, it's similar. When we think about strategies, we're normally in the three to five year time horizon. Very seldom are we thinking 10 years. That's understandable. But without wanting to sound too grandiose, and this does sound grandiose, but I apologize for, for, for a minute. I, I want to think in the terms of the next 50 years. And when um, Keynes and that crowd, this is the grandiose bit, when Keynes and that crowd started to think through the Bretton Woods Institutes after the Second World War, they weren't thinking about the residents of Sydney, they, they, in that sense. They weren't thinking about um, uh, the, the, the kind of short-term political constraints. They were thinking big about how does the world respond to the massive challenges that it faces. What institutions and what theories do we need for the next 50 years? And pretty much, for all the critiques you have of the World Bank and the IMF and all of that, they, they, they got a lot of it right. And they set things up that were necessary, kind of regardless of all the things that always constrain our thinking. And I would just ask you for the next 30 minutes to think in that frame. And we'll come back to, inevitably, because it's the most urgent thing always, we'll come back to how do you frame it and how do you communicate it and all of that. But let's try and think what do we actually need as a globe to respond both to the opportunities that we have that are set out in the SDGs in a positive sense, but also the huge risks that we're facing that we all know about, especially with regard to climate and the environment. And, and, and there are other risks as well. Right. I think that was all my throat clearing. Yeah, so that's all the throat clearing. But the, the, before I even get onto my five paradigm shift, there's one more thing that I used to always put at the end, and I now put at the beginning because it's, it's, it, it's proven to be really helpful. Uh, I was just in a, in a meeting there on identity and poverty, and someone said it's always good to, to, to set out the kind of takeaways at the beginning of the, of the um, presentation. So this isn't quite that. It isn't quite a takeaway, but it's, it's one of the most useful things to kind of understand what I'm proposing. And it's an analogy. It's not... Uh, an analogy which helps to understand. There is no way that what I'm proposing is ever going to be possible at the global level uh, in the same way as it's possible in the European level, but it's an analogy and it helps. So in Europe, by the way, um, just clearly, <laughs> it's, not, it's not the best time for a Brit to come here to extol the values of the European Union, but there's nothing I could do about that. I did my best. Uh, we've all given up. And the, the, the general point I want to make, or regardless of whether or not Britain is a member. Um, so the point is, billions are transferred annually and have been for decades. Uh, it was the south of Europe, Spain, Italy, Portugal, that benefited in the early years, in the 70s and 80s, 80s and 90s. And um, it's now Eastern Europe massively. Now, these are relatively wealthy countries. Poland is the 50th richest country in the world. It receives billions. Um, uh, uh, I don't want to say billions a year. It's certainly about a billion a year. It's billions over a period of five years in the budget. Uh, that's just a country I've picked on. The same is true of many of the uh, net recipient countries. It's effectively aid. There's not much difference between the money that they receive. It's grant money. It's to support um, development in their countries. Um, and the aim is convergence. And we'll come back to that. Uh, it's not poverty reduction. It's convergence with living standards that are considered acceptable uh, for Europeans. And just dwell on that for a bit when we think about what our ambitions are for the rest of the world. Uh, it's also clearly within the, within the context of a market. And there's a clear self-interested purpose, which is to build a market for the goods of the wealthier nations. Um, this is important. Every country contributes, but poorer countries make a net gain. So while Poland is a net recipient, I'm just picking on Poland again, I could just pick on any country, uh, it contributes every year as well. Um, and I'll come back to another analogy later when we look at national taxation. It's the same way that we pay our taxes, but we also receive benefits and sometimes finance and money back. Um, but poorer countries clearly are net recipients and richer countries are clearly net contributors. Um, every country, that means that every country has a seat at the table. We don't have a donor-recipient model in Europe. We have a membership model in Europe. Um, and interestingly here, even the wealthier countries receive support. So dwelling on Britain, even though it's no longer a member, parts of Britain like Cornwall, Liverpool, North Wales, uh, which were more deprived parts of Britain, receive money from Europe. 
Britain is the fifth wealthiest country in the world. Why is it receiving what is effectively aid? Because, and I'll come on to this, that it's, it's the type of money, not just the quantity of money, that matters in these kind of relationships. It's something that we very often forget. Um, and I'd also ask you, so just remember this as we go through, and just also think about the regional and sub-regional development banks, because one of the things that's interesting about this presentation, when I started to give it a few years ago, everyone, not everyone, but it was generally considered to be a bit kind of uh, radical and unrealistic. <laughs> now a lot of people hear it and think it's kind of fairly obvious. And I think that's partly because things have moved on a lot, but I think it's partly because a lot of the things that sound radical are actually already happening. Um, so that model that I just suggested about all countries contributing, all countries uh, receiving, happens at the regional development banks already. Um, and yet we don't conceptualize it like that when we think of aid. We still think north-south. Uh, when actually what I'm suggesting here is both in some senses, a radical change in the way we think about aid and, and uh, development finance. It's also just trying to reflect what's actually happening in some kind of theoretical way that we haven't yet done, because we're clinging to a lot for incentives with regard to communication to the public and raising money. We're clinging to outdated uh, language and theories that are no longer appropriate. Right, so the language we're using is global public investment. And what I mean by that is concessional international public finance intended to promote sustainable development. So that's clearly what ODA is. But ODA is not an acceptable term to use because there's much more, because ODA is just, is, is by definition, given by OECD countries. Uh, and clearly many, many other countries are engaged in contributing concessional international public finance for sustainable development. There just isn't another, there isn't a, as, I, as far as I'm aware, there is not a term that covers that. So we could either say, every time, concessional international public finance for sustainable development, or we could say, well, I'm just, well, we can make up a new term, and that's what I've done here. Um, uh, I know we don't need more jargon in our world, but in this case, I thought we actually do, because we, there isn't actually a term for this. Um, a lot of people have pushed back on the word investment, and I think maybe they're right to do so. So at the moment, we're testing out the concept of contributions as well. I mean. I'd be interested in your views, actually, but it's just trying to get the terminology right. The fundamental point is we need some kind of term that, 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 that describes this. Okay, so what's the first paradigm shift? Ambition. Now, this is one that is now, with the SDGs, I think, at the international level, at the kind of international community level, it's pretty much accepted. The ambition of the MDGs and the MDG period you know, starting when the World Bank uh, officially started to focus on poverty in the 90s, and a number of, uh, uh, of uh, traditional donor agencies began to do the same. It wasn't always the way, as you know. When, when ODA started in the 50s and 60s, it was more about broader economic growth, the huge poverty focus in the last 20 years. And the SDGs have massively changed that. And that was a win for the Global South. So I, I was living in Colombia until 2014, and, I was, and the Colombians were, by the way, very much a part of uh, setting up the concept of the SDGs. And we were all really excited by them because they transformed the way that, that it, was a, it was a real paradigm shift in the way we think about development. No longer between developed countries helping developing countries, but all countries had targets, this kind of concept of universalism. So we we're massively excited about them. I came back to London as a policy director of a major charity, Save the Children UK. Everyone was focused on basically destroying the concept of the SDGs. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that happened around here. But the big uh, uh, the traditional governments, the big, the big Western governments, with the uh, NGOs and funds that work closely with them, for, for, from, for some good reasons, by the way, found the SDG vision utterly unhelpful in terms of a priority list uh, for international development spending and other interventions. And I can understand that. I mean, it's not a good, let's face it, it's not a good priority list. Um, it's a bit like the UN Declaration on Human Rights. It's a, it's a vision for a better world, but it doesn't really help you decide how to spend a limited pot of money. So I totally understand what people were trying to do, but they didn't get it. They didn't get that the world has changed. It's no longer about the West trying to help other countries with, with pockets of poverty. It's about everyone trying to construct a better world together. Um, and so uh, the specifics of that are from poverty to inequality. Now, 
This is this is this this is an important one. You you might have seen that um, in 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 the EU. Like I said, we don't talk about ending poverty. We talk about convergence. What if we applied that to the rest of the world? I was just in a really interesting session on poverty just now. In Britain, our analysis of poverty, our concept of poverty is, is relative. We have 60% of median income. Now, that's a very different to an absolute um, poverty line. Uh, our, our, the traditional way of thinking about poverty and development is it's a very, very stingy understanding of poverty. When people have just crossed a incredibly stingy line, a bit like what Paul Collier implied, the responsibility of the international community ends and we can, we can leave. They are now out of the woods. And you see that in, uh, I know best obviously, you know, my own country, the UK, and we have, we've had ministers saying, you know, Vietnam it can now, quote, stand on its own two feet. Um, countries like Ghana, Zambia are now emerging from poverty, no longer need support. It makes sense in the traditional way of understanding things because the line we've set is so incredibly low. Um, what if we started saying, actually, it's not about this kind of low threshold for absolute poverty, either personal poverty in terms of dollar a day or, or country poverty in terms of income per capita, but actually it's about uh, convergence to a higher uh, living standard, which, broadly speaking, is what one would expect in, quote, the West. That transforms uh, the ambition of international, of international development and will actually transform the way that we choose to spend our money. From growth to sustainability, again, well, I've put up the donut. Some of you will know Kate Rayworth's work on the donut. It's just a new way of thinking about progress, which is not simply, this is all standard stuff, which is why I say that this paradigm shift, I think, is quite a long way down the line. Um, it's not about simple economic growth. We know the costs, so it's actually about sustainable economic growth or sustainability if you want to discuss growth and degrowth, which I'm not going to go into here. And also it's about international public goods, not just national public goods. So traditionally, development has been about helping countries do stuff and, be, and become better. Well, now we're quite clear that it's about regional public goods and uh, international public goods as well. So all the ambition stuff, I haven't yet started to talk about what's the role of concessional international public finance in that. So we could all agree that that's the new ambition. It still doesn't yet say, what's the point of this particular kind of money? And is the point that it, that it slowly dies out, which is, which, is, which, is, which is what traditional aid thinking says. And I think the fundamental mistake here is to um, think that all, kind, all dollars are the same. Now, it's never a mistake we would make at the national level. So we would never say, right, we've got to fund health. Now, it's you know, X billion that we need to fund health for everyone. Where can we get the money from? Oh, we can all be private. Fine, it's all, it's all private money. Or it's all, it's all the Gates Foundation coming in. They'll, they'll pay for it all. That doesn't matter. That's fine. As long as, it's, as, long as the money's there. Because we understand the importance of public money. It's totally different. It's different kinds of accountability. It's different kinds of objective, and I'll come on to it. At the national level, everyone understands why public money is different to private money. But at the international level, you'd be surprised how many discussions about, quotes MDG financing gaps and SDG financing gaps and health financing gaps and education financing gaps, they kind of put a number together, and then try and work out how they can fill that hole with really any money available. You have to understand that there are different types of money. And even if, and it's true that, international public finance, concessional international public finance, is going to be a small amount of money. Again, it's a fallacy to say, and we hear it all the time, because it's small, it's irrelevant. We would never say that at the national level. Oh, there's hardly any money for public spending on health in this country. Oh, it's irrelevant then. <laughs> you never say that. You say, we have to, that's even more special. It's even more essential. Let's grow it. You know, let's focus on it. But in the, in the world of, of, of development finance at the moment, in SDGs, it's like, oh, well, it's just a tiny amount. Forget about it. It's working on everything else. So I, I, I spent most of my career trying to persuade people to work on everything else. And now I just think this is a, actually a really, really special kind of money. It's just been forgotten. Um, and so... Um, so it's not about just filling gaps, it's about overcoming traps, and it's, it's, it's moving, it's moving uh, from thinking of aid, uh, or in my language, concessional finance, global public investment, whatever you want to call it, from a last resort, so when other monies are available, aid can end, to a first thought. It's a special kind of money that can be used for special kind of things, and even if other kinds of money are available, it's still my first choice.
uh, and, and this, this responds to kind of one of the big dilemmas that current, the, the current traditional aid theory just doesn't have. That, that, that's Colombia's um, Agencia Presidencial de Cooperación, so co Presidential Cooperation Agency. Now, there's, there's two directorates. One is the recipient directorate and one is the contribu contributing directorate. Colombia does both. And increasingly, a lot of countries are doing that. China does it, India does it, most countries are doing it, actually. It just doesn't make any sense in traditional aid theory. Because the point is that you have a poor country that hasn't got enough money and you have to give it money. So why would that poor country that hasn't got enough money is receiving money also be spending money? It makes no sense in the simple terms of our traditional understanding of aid. But it's because that money is special. It comes with specific characteristics that make sense for the UK to receive money from Europe to spend in Cornwall, even though it could theoretically just send money from London to Cornwall, because it's a special kind of money. It has specific uh, qualities. The motivation of international public money is different to private money. Quite obviously, it hasn't got a profit motive. It's different to domestic public money. Now, I'm not a kind of simplistic aid fan. I'm well aware of all the problems with aid. Um, and I'm not saying that the motivation is always better. I'm saying it's different. And it can be managed in a different way. It's concessional, by definition, concessional international public finance. It can be flexible, so when countries are going through uh, tough times, when private money is leaving, when domestic money is low, it can turn up. Uh, it, it's available, maybe that's a bit of a uh, repetition. It comes with specific kinds of expertise. Really, really important. And some people say, and in fact, Lant was saying it the other day, you know, it's sometimes it's not even the money that's the most important thing. And I speak into Uruguay and Chile on the continent that I live in, and they're are annoyed and worried about graduating from aid and losing their access to funds. What they're most worried about, not most worried about, what they're also worried about, is losing the access to the, to the whole international development sector and that sharing. And yes, theoretically, that can happen without money, but it doesn't. You need money to back that. You need money to build, build these kind of relationships. The transparency and accountability, again, is different. Again, I'm not claiming that all aid is transparent and accountable. But the relationships are different, and the, and, and the pressures are different, and, and the opportunities are different. Um, and it can be sustainable in a way that's, that other kinds of money sometimes aren't. So if you depend on national public finance for particular things, taxes, changes in government can have quite significant impact on particular populations or particular themes. Um, and yes, clearly, our sector is incredibly faddish as well. But again, it's different. It can be complementary. So I hope... Right, thank you. So I hope I'm not overclaiming for the wonderfulness of aid. What I'm saying is it's a specific and different kind of money that can be really important and really complementary. Right. Uh, yeah, and another example. I love this example from Colombia because one of the reasons I started working on this was I, I'd just written this book kind of basically kind of critiquing aid quite a lot. I was at ODI at the time, which is a think tank in London, and the boss said, can you write us a piece on aid to mix. At the time, especially in the UK, aid to middle-income countries, the idea was let's try and reduce it as much as possible, let's kind of have a big go at aid to middle-income countries in order to kind of focus it more on low-income countries. Again, and I understand why, and it's not, there weren't bad reasons. But, um, so I started doing this uh, uh, research piece on the role of aid in middle-income countries, and what I found was quite the opposite. Aid to middle-income countries tends to be at very low levels compared to the size of their economy, so doesn't have all the negative aspects that huge amounts of aid over long periods of time has had in very low-income countries in terms of um, uh, uh, governance and institutions and what one might describe as aid dependency. And actually, you know, uh, aid, even though it was a tiny percentage of the economy, could make a huge difference. Now, aid is not from, from the DAC. I keep on using aid it's just because it's shorthand. I don't like the word any more than any of you guys do, but uh, um, otherwise I've used, have to use long phrases the whole time. So DAC aid to Colombia is about 0.2% of the GDP. In, in, in most of the meetings I go to, that would be considered irrelevant. The evaluation of aid to Colombia, this was in 2011 for the Busan meeting that some of you may have been at. The evaluation of aid to Colombia found that in certain fields, such as the environment, institutional strengthening, productive system support, well as problems related to the struggle against inequality, internal displacement, and human rights violations, the selective use of aid funding expertise and shared experience was, quote, a determining factor in achieving better development results not just a factor, a determining factor, and these are the guys that have studied it. 
uh, and actually are producing evidence on it. And I believe that a lot of the, ba the, the basis of decisions that we're making at the moment about aid to mix, just about broadly about the future of aid gender, is not really based on particularly good evidence. It's based on kind of whim, instinct, and pressure. The evidence implies that aid to middle-income countries can continue to make a really big difference, uh, even if it's not 10% of the budget, as a, or, or, or even more, as it has been in many of the much lower-income countries. Geography. So, so remember the EU analogy. And this sounds radical, uh, if you were to say it in some, uh, in some groups, but actually we already know it's already happening. The idea that, that aid is north-south or rich-poor is a total fallacy. Actually, it has been for a very long time now. But we still haven't shifted our, our, our conceptual, um, our, our concepts and our, and our language. So in keeping with the SDGs, um, all countries should contribute um, concessional international public finance. It should be a universal idea. Now, the slightly more radical thing that I'm going to add to it is that all countries, so not just China and India and Latin America and the fairly wealthy countries, all countries, Sierra Leone, Rwanda, Haiti, why on earth would the poorest countries in the world want to contribute money when they're so in desperate need themselves of money. Well, it's the same reason that, on a different scale, Romania and Poland contribute to the EU. Budget. They get a, they get a lot more back. But the change in terms of governance, the change in terms of their influence, change in terms of their dignity, uh, and I'll come on to kind of those kind of issues, is massive. If you start thinking about all countries contributing according to need and all countries receiving, sorry, according to ability, and all countries receiving according to need, all of a sudden we're all working together according to our abilities to respond to national, regional, global challenges rather than um, some countries uh, desperately begging for help from other countries who offer their largesse, which is still pretty much the way that we sell this in the Western world. So this language from, grade, from graduation to gradation comes from a guy called Sagasti and some of his colleagues in Peru. And they're just suggesting this, this concept of graduation, which is pretty much based on income per capita, and there's a threshold, and then you begin to graduate. And his line was, no, there's a, an, an, an Alonso in Spain uh, uh, has also worked on this, and Andy Sumner, that some of you will have read, British guy. You, you set a whole range of indicators for um, what, uh, what kind of monies are required for what. So they may include environmental indicators. Classically, you know, the small islands may well have really fairly decent income per GDP, uh, GDP income per capita uh, uh, data, but are still in desperate need of support. That's just one example. There are many others. Um, so you gradate uh, finance rather than simple graduation. And by the way, the Global Fund, someone asked me to mention it the other day, and, it's, and I do it very, very happily because it's a great example of the, of, the, of, the way, of, the, of the direction we need to move in. The Global Fund has just been replenished. Uh, it's the Global Fund for AIDS, uh, um, TB and malaria. Just been replenished. And some of the contributors are some of the poorest countries in the world. So some of you are nodding, you already know this, but countries like Rwanda, Nigeria, Zimbabwe, some of them have promised and haven't yet paid. Some of them have already made the contributions. And that's just an example of where we're already heading. This is not that radical anymore. This is happening. And we need to start to change the way our concepts and language to reflect that. Yep. So I'm on number three. I'm almost there. I'm not doing so badly. Okay, this was just a kind of... Uh, trying to show that it's nothing, it's not, it's not north-south. At one point, I tried to kind of group different types of, um, of uh, development cooperation. So Latin America has quite a specific way of doing things. So do the Arab countries. Uh, possibly the, the Scandinavians do as well. It's South Africa down there. It's kind of old. I did this a couple of years ago. I should, have, I should be including pretty much everywhere now. Um, has their own way of doing things. It's definitely not aid and south-south cooperation. Which is what, which is, if there is a distinction, is what we use at the moment. It's all sorts of different ways of contributing to the global commons. 
Um, governance, so, so building on that shifting wealth and power and the fact that all countries are beginning to engage in this. And I, I once did a, a little consultancy for Kazakhstan because they were setting up their uh, development agency. Everyone's slowly setting up a development agency and somehow we have to get hold of that and manage that in a sensible way that isn't just sat in Paris at the DAC. And so what I propose is from voluntary to contributory, so we shouldn't think of aid as something we, can, we, do, we, sh we, we give if we can, if we can't, well, you know, domestic pressures. This should be, I mean, you can't enforce this. I'm not suggesting some kind of enforcement. It would be impossible. But it should be considered to be a contribution uh, and it should be scaled and formal in much the same way that, we that all countries have to pay UN membership um, from, from, and, and then just a, a few ideas, I won't go into them because I haven't got time, but you can think of the implications of everyone sitting down together on governance, from a, from a unilateral uh, way of thinking to multilateral, from OECD, where a lot of decisions are made, they've just themselves, this small group of 27 or 30 countries, redefined aid, redefined what counts as ODA in 2020. You know, these countries have taken it upon themselves to decide how we define the 0.7% contribution rather than saying, actually, it's now time for everyone to get involved. So that's got to change. And, and from states to peoples is trying to emphasize the importance of civil society and their role in holding um, uh, governments accountable. And then finally, narrative, the fifth paradigm shift. And this is the language that we use. And I think this is both important for comms, absolutely, but also important for um, the way that we think about ourselves um, and, I'm, and I say that as a global citizen, the way that everyone thinks about themselves. And I think for too long, we've recognized that the language of aid, everyone recognizes that language of aid is old fashioned. Everyone knows that it's much more, uh, that the language of charity is incredibly limited, that really it's not that generous quite often that we're buying our own interests. And we all know that. And yet we'll still go out and talk about it in the same way. And I think it's getting a little bit boring. We've been doing it for 10, 15, 20 years now. And I think it's, I would really urge the Australians in this opportunity as you're rewriting your strategy to just, just take a lead. Just, just stop saying charity, stop saying aid, and start to talk about, stop saying donor, recipient, donor. We still say that the whole time. You know, contributor is a lot better. There's no perfect words, let's face it. I mean, we could be here forever talking about the perfect words, but there are better words. Uh, and I would just, I won't go into the detail on any of this, but I would just say, I think we think too often that words are just words. And they are deeply meaningful and can have practical uh, outcomes. And something I was thinking the other day is if you think about where you're from in whichever country you're from, and then think maybe if it's a poor part of the country, imagine that was described as a developing county or a developing town. Uh, and then another part of the country, much richer, was described as, oh, that's the developed town in our country. That's the developed county. Um, not only would it be insulting, and kind of hilarious. We would never talk about you know, poorer parts of Britain in that way. Um, it would also have, an, I, I believe, a material effect on the psychology of communities and people living in those places. And on the, on, on, on the, on the, on the superior psychology of people living in, quotes, developed places. It's really, really unhelpful language. And I think it has a material impact. I think it's probably about time to end it. Uh, and, this, sorry, and this final one is important, from foreign to global. We stop thinking about it as sending money abroad in the same way as we stop thinking about, uh, we don't think about our taxes as sending money to other parts of the country. We think about them as investing in our own country. You know, let's start thinking about aid or whatever we call it as investing in our own world rather than sending, you know, it's kind of spending money on other people. It's investing in our own, in our own world and well-being. Uh, by the way, in climate, I know I've got to shut up. Uh, it, it, climate, climate finance is a great example of this. So India basically said no thanks to aid, but it didn't say no thanks to climate finance. There's a huge amount of money. It's pretty much similar to aid, to be honest. But the way it's framed is incredibly different. The way it's governed is incredibly different. And for Indians, that is a dignified thing to be doing. So this is the final analogies. Just again, it's a really bad graphic. I apologize. I did it myself. And... Uh, <laughs> I should get someone to help me with it. Uh, but basically it's saying, look, you know, at the national level, we invest in our own well-being. Why don't we start thinking about it pretty much similarly at the regional level, I've already said, and also at the, at the global level. It's a new way of thinking about stuff. And, and the major implication of this, finally, is that, is that aid is not a temporary fillet. The, the basic thing we've always thought is wrong. 
it's actually a, a, an important and permanent, certainly for the foreseeable future, part of the global development financing landscape. And if you just remember, final point, final, final, final point. <laughs> In, uh, you know, at the beginning of the, 19th, uh, the 20th century, national public spending, so our tax spend, was tiny. It was the beginning of something. And after, in the case of the UK, after two world wars, it was up to, from about 10%, up to about 30%. And now it's about 40% of, of GDP. So over a period of a century, it's become an absolutely standard part of our, of our um, economy, for obvious reasons. And my suggestion is, is all this is, you know, international public finance is going to be tiny compared with that. I'm not suggesting some kind of huge kind of um, global uh, bureaucracy. But I'm suggesting that maybe it's 0.5%, maybe it's 0.7%, maybe it's 1%, but it's a permanent and a, 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 a contribution. We're not at the end of something, we're at the beginning of something. Jonathan, thank you. I've got my writing instructions now. Don't be boring. <laughs> Use new words. Can I also acknowledge Jane Prentice, who is a member of our expert panel, who's also managed to find a seat by elbowing some people out of the way in this packed audience. It's, uh, she's a member of the expert panel guiding our, our uh, refresh of the development policy. Uh, open for Q&A. We don't have much time because we're just before lunch, but can I open it to... The crowd. I might, what I might do is take two or three comments and questions and then ask Jonathan to respond. Please. So um, it was more a reflection uh, from listening to you speak. It was marvellous. And I was reflecting on the bushfires recently in Australia and from all across the Pacific and um, Indonesia and some countries in Asia offered aid, if you like, uh, to Australia, whether it be personnel or money. Vanuatu even made a pledge um, to Australia. Unfortunately, Australia did not uh, take up a lot of those offers, or most of them. They did from the US and from Canada and Singapore, and more recently from Indonesia. And that made me quite sad because it says more about us and it says how we identify ourselves. And so your discussion around our region and we don't see ourselves as in that way is really challenging and would fundamentally change our relationships with our neighbourhood if we could make that leap for ourselves. Thanks, Bernadette. Absolutely right. We were really overwhelmed by the generosity and thoughts of so many people in our region. Other comments, questions? Sarah. Sarah Buddington from DFAT. Um, I think the language points that you made at the end will really resonate with um, newer southern donors um, and some of their critiques of, of aid and the past of aid. Um, but I guess my understanding of what's motivating the establishment of aid agencies, development agencies in countries that have traditionally been development recipients is a desire for status, um, for equality, um, for influence, but also to build relationships with the countries that they're giving development assistance to. And does this idea of global public investment meet um, those incentives of, of southern donors? I'll take one more, please. Patrick Kilby from the ANU. Um, th th this is probably very wishful thinking, but, but and, and I think you've said this, none of this is new. The term emerging donors, I think, is very, very bad language. In the mid-70s, half of the world's aid came from yeah. the o um, um, OPEC plus China plus yeah. others. It'd be good to reframe the language which is more respectful, even historically. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. Do you want to respond, Jonathan? Yep. So, yeah, on, just take that last one first. Totally agree. I don't think emerging donors is, I mean, donors is annoying, emerging is annoying. You know. <laughs> <laughs> 
totally agree with you. And, and, and that's an amazing fact. I'd come across that the other day as well, is that in the 70s, they were really, they were really, uh, and China at that point was incredibly poor. Um, so yeah, um, on, the, on the point about uh, um, the poorer countries of the region contributing, yeah, I'd, I'd heard that just in the last couple of days. It's astonishing, isn't it? And, um, you know, just a, a, a kind of side point, the, the charity paradigm is actually a prison for the, the givers as well as the receivers. You know, it's totally misunderstanding of ourselves. And it, and it doesn't allow us to psychologically mature and move on. Um, so it's, it, for, for that slightly lesser reason, it's also important to change. There's a really important point about um, why the kind of the motivations for other countries, uh, you know, despite what you say, there are some countries that are uh, emerging and setting up new uh, agencies. And why are they doing it? And why and China is certainly not new to this, but has definitely increased uh, in the last 10, 15 years, a huge uh, uh, spending abroad. And clearly, the reason, the motivations are complex. I think it's important that we recognize that um, one of the motivations is solidarity with poor people and poor countries. It's something that when we move too quickly onto political analysis, we forget about. Uh, just as much as Australia has mixed motivations for engaging in the region and the world, some of which are absolutely generosity and solidarity, and some of which are much more kind of uh, uh, geopolitical. That's true of all countries. So what I'm proposing here, it, 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 the danger when I make the presentation is it seems incredibly kind of, uh, sort of naive and optimistic. Um, I think that w w what we need to do if we're going to get a handle on all the various types of monies that are flowing around the world at the moment is to first have, have some kind of theory that understands it, and I think we're miles away from that. And then, based on that, have a, have a governance structure that includes everyone. At the moment, the DAC is not that bad as a governance structure for a small number of countries. Everyone else is pretty much Wild West. Um, uh, and, and, and both, both uh, you know, those, let's, let's just say South South Corporation to differentiate from, from the DAC, you know, they're quite happy to, to not be really uh, regulated by anyone. It's pretty annoying to be regulated by people or, or to have rules. Also, recipients are quite happy, uh, especially if, uh, at the kind of presidential executive level, not to really be regulated by anyone. So the question is, how do we move to a situation over the next 5, 10, 15 years where citizens of the world have some kind of hold on this? Because actually, although it's a tiny amount of money compared to global GDP, it's a significant amount of money in many countries. Um, and so I think that the, the, the idea behind this is not to pretend that there aren't mixed motivations for all, all of this. It's to try and set up a structure and laws or regulations or, or norms that mitigate the reality that power will always exist, that people will always be trying to buy favours and all that kind of stuff. Thank you, Jonathan. You have been listening to Dev Policy Talks, a podcast by the Development Policy Centre at the Australian National University. To find out more about Dev Policy and our work on Australian aid, PNG in the Pacific and global development policy, visit our website devpolicy.anu.edu.au or check out our blog at devpolicy.org where you can subscribe to our daily posts, various newsletters and this podcast. You can also connect with us on social media. And thanks for listening.